Good morning. Thank you all who have served so far for lifting our eyes away from this life, away from what's going on in our lives, whether full of celebration or mourning, and lifting us to things that transcend. So important. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We'll begin at verse 12 this morning. First impressions are pretty important. We know that. That's why we will get dressed up for a job interview. That's why we act especially polite on a first date. That's why we prepare really well for a public presentation, especially when it's before people we don't know. That's why we might pick our favorite outfit before the first day of school. You know, first impressions are important. We know that they're important because we know that they can determine how we are perceived, how we're thought of, and how we're remembered long after that first encounter has faded away. No matter how brief it was and no matter how unremarkable it was, we know that those first impressions can carry on into the future. In 2012, there was a study done on first impressions by a social psychologist named Amy Cuddy, and she reported in this study that people's first impressions are based almost entirely around perceptions of two things, trustworthiness and competence. That means that when people meet you for the first time, whether they know it or not, they are evaluating you based on how trustworthy you seem to be, how dependable you seem to be, and how capable you seem to be, how trustworthy you are, and how competent you are. Maybe these were the types of questions going through the people's mind in the first century when Jesus first came on the scene, when he appeared, and they saw him in Israel, and they were saying, what do we make of this guy? Is he trustworthy? Can he be who the king is supposed to be, this king we've been waiting for for so long? Is he capable? Can he do what this king that we've longed for is supposed to do? Can he be and can he do what we have anticipated? What do we make of this guy who's coming on the scene? First impressions, they're important. And this morning in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at the, the impression that Jesus made as he came on the scene as the coming king to his would be subjects. We're going to see what kind of first impression he made. We saw last week the tail end of the preparation of the king. In Matthew's account, he's showing that Jesus is legally qualified to be the promised Messiah and king. And last week, we saw that he was announced by John the Baptist, that he was authenticated at his baptism by the highest power possible, and that he was accepted or he was seen acceptable as he passed those moral tests in the wilderness. And now as we come to chapter 4, verse 12, we're going to see that this is the introduction of the king. He's been prepared, and now he comes on the scene, and he's being introduced to his people for the first time. What we're going to see is him being introduced in three categories, in three ways, or by three means. The first is by means of prophecy. The second, by means of authority. And the third, by means of ministry. So we have prophecy, authority, and ministry. This is how the coming king was introduced to his people. Now we begin in verse 12, as I said, 
with Jesus being introduced through prophecy, and, and more specifically, the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 12 begins this way. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, remember that this is his forerunner, John the Baptist. And he's taken into custody, as any king in those days would follow suit. The king doesn't actually appear until the forerunner's work has been completed. And so here in this verse, we see John the Baptist fading out and Jesus, the coming king, fading in with his ministry. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, out of this picture, off the scene, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So we see before he begins his ministry with the, his forerunner fading off the scene, him fading into his ministry, he first relocates. Seems to be an odd detail to include, but we see him transitioning his home base from Nazareth to Galilee. And we might ask, why? We might speculate, why would he do that? Is that a better base of operations? Did he like the scenery better? What is the motivation for this relocation, and why would Matthew include it? And many have speculated over the years. But if we keep reading, Matthew actually tells us why. He says in verse 14, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. So you see the king's move here was for the purpose, the express purpose of fulfilling prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 9, the, the passage that Matthew quotes here, God is promising his people, the people of Israel, a, a Messiah-led liberation from foreign oppression. At the time that Isaiah was speaking, Israel was under the thumb of Assyria, a foreign superpower. They were oppressing them. And, and the message that Isaiah was bringing to the people from God was that while they were enslaved, they would one day be liberated, and they could tell that that liberation was on the horizon because a light would shine in their presence. When Jesus comes on the scene here, recorded by Matthew, Israel is no longer under the oppression of Assyria, but they are under the oppression of Rome, another foreign superpower. And they are aching for liberation, yet again, for freedom, and when the Lord relocates to their region, to the region of, of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes of Israel, when he relocates to that region, he's fulfilling prophecy. And he's shining the light of coming freedom. Again, he's signifying the message. Here comes the kingdom. Here comes freedom. And you and I, we look forward to physical freedom as well. You know, from oppressive kingdoms here in this world. We sometimes forget that the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world. And that Jesus himself declares that Satan is its ruler. He is the king and we are living in his jurisdiction. And so as Christians, we look forward to a day when we will too be sprung, that we will be released, that we will be freed from this oppression. And that a kingdom will come that will be liberating and freeing. But in the meantime... 
We have been spiritually liberated, have we not? We have been spiritually liberated. We're told that Jesus brings light into darkness, clarity into confusion, illumination into chaos. That's what he does. To this day, I can still remember the moment that I trusted Christ for the first time. And even as a young child, not being able to fully articulate what was happening, I remember feeling the lights come on, so to speak. Maybe you've experienced that as well. As you think back to the time that you were saved, all of a sudden, clarity. The Lord brought light into darkness. There's been times in my life, and I'm sure you share these experiences, where I'm walking and wanting to do God's will, and once in a while, he just makes it so undeniably clear the direction he wants me to go. It doesn't happen to me very often, but sometimes it is so crystal clear in my life. I say, thank you, Lord, for illuminating the way you want me to walk. There are other times in my life where God shines the spotlight on sin in my life. He illumines the darkness and exposes things in my heart that I didn't even know were there. I was living in blissful ignorance. As you mature in Christ, he exposes the nastiness. And it leads you to repentance and forgiveness that's guaranteed for us in the New Testament. But at the same time, it's that light that exposes the depth of corruption, the extent of it. But in all these ways, Jesus comes and spiritually brings light into darkness and freedom from the bondage of sin. John, the Apostle John, in the prelude to his gospel in John chapter 1, he says this of Jesus. I'm sure most of you can quote the words. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it. I love that picture. It's just penetrating the thick blackness of this world. Jesus brings that illumination. Jesus, the light, illumines the darkness, bringing life where there is death and freedom where there is bondage. And he did that as he was being introduced to his people at the start of his earthly ministry by fulfilling prophecy here in Matthew chapter 4 for the citizens of Zebulon and Naphtali. But for them, it wasn't merely spiritual freedom like we're talking about now. It was physical freedom. It was the sign that physical liberation was coming from physical bondage through a physical kingdom. We can't miss that. That they were anticipating something tangible, that a kingdom was going to be made on this earth. That's what they had anticipated for centuries. And John the Baptist said, repent for that kingdom, the one you anticipated, is so near. And Jesus comes on the scene as that light, signifying that that kingdom, that physical kingdom, that physical liberation, is nigh. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John the Baptist, his ministry may have faded off, trailed off to allow for the king to be exposed and be introduced, but the message they bore was the exact same, wasn't it? John in chapter 3, verse 2 comes along and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he fades off and the king shows up and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just as John promised this, this earthly coming kingdom, so too the king promised his future earthly kingdom. And in both cases, John and Jesus, Israel was to prepare themselves spiritually for this physical kingdom by repenting, by preparing themselves. Why? Because the coming kingdom was the righteous one. If to prepare to be in, in front of, before, and to serve this righteous one by repenting and preparing for him. 
And so first impressions of the king. He comes on the scene for the first time to his would-be subjects. And Jesus is introduced as one who fulfills prophecy. Prophecy relating to the liberation of God's people from wicked oppression. Now, as we come to verse 18, Matthew adds another layer to Jesus' introduction here, and it's that of authority. We've seen prophecy, and now it's authority. Authority as demonstrated through the recruitment of his first disciples. Let me read the paragraph, starting in verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for... They were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So after being introduced through the fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus is now introduced by recruiting disciples with kingly authority, with kingly authority. Now I want us to notice three things about the paragraph we just read, about the recruitment of Jesus' first disciples. The first thing I want us to notice is the type of people that Jesus called, the type of people that he's calling to be his disciples, to follow him. You know, Peter and Andrew were, quote, casting a net into the sea when they were called. Why? For they were fishermen. James and John were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. Why? Because they, too, were fishermen. You'd think to make a good first impression, this king coming on the scene, when he called his first followers, he would call the rich and the powerful and the celebrity to get his band that showed his glory behind him. But he doesn't do that. In fact, the first people he calls are basically the opposite of that. He calls blue-collar laymen, people that would later be mocked when he ascended to heaven, Jesus ascended to heaven and left his disciples to continue his ministry. They were called uneducated, simpletons, untrained people. This is who Jesus called. Their hands were calloused, their skin was weathered, and their clothes smelled like fish. This was the type of people the king called. And praise God for that. Praise God that this is the type of people called, that he doesn't call according to worldly standards, that he calls the the destitute, the people that the world judges as worth nothing. Praise the Lord for that. I think most of us can resonate with what Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth when he writes this, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, He's talking about Christians there. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Thank God he doesn't choose on worldly, based on worldly worthiness. That's not his type. He chooses average people like you and like me. And that's who he chose here. This is the type of people that Jesus called when he recruited his first disciples. This was the first recruitment of the king. Now, the second thing I want us to notice from this paragraph is is the task to which he called them. So we see the type of people he called, but now look at the task that he called them to. In verse 19, it says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They were to come after him so that he could transform them into kingdom emissaries, 
I'm the king. I'm calling you. I will transform you into the type of people that will go and bring human beings into the presence of the king and not fish to the market. I will make you fishers of men. God will transform these ordinary people to an extraordinary task, to be equipped to do his bidding, the bidding of the king. Now, the third thing I want us to notice is not only the, the type of people he calls and the task to which they're called, but finally we want to notice the way in which they followed him. I know you noticed that, but in verse 20 and 22, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. With all four, there is this instant sacrificial obedience. This scene illustrates the, the power and authority that Jesus had over people. Come, follow me. Yeah, definitely. Come, follow me. They leave everything and they just go after him. What authority, what massive authority do you need to command that type of a following? And that same authority, in that same authority, he has called nobodies like you and I to be trained for and work at a divine task. Just like then, so it is now. It's the same authority. He doesn't wield any less authority today than he did then, and he calls to us, and he says, follow me. I will equip you for a task that is far too great for you to handle. You can't do this task, but I will equip you to accomplish it. The question becomes, how do we follow? Do we follow like these four? with reckless abandon, just throwing everything aside, family, whatever it takes, and following him immediately. That's the question that's put before us when met with the authority put on display of this king being introduced to his people. Now, to this point in the text in Matthew 4, Matthew has described the introduction of this long-awaited king by way of prophecy fulfillment and authority through recruitment of his disciples. But as we come to verse 23, he adds a final means of kingly introduction. And that's one of ministry. It's ministry with miraculous reinforcement. So he starts his ministry, we see, in verse 23. Let me read that paragraph. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various disease, diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So again, John's ministry fades out. Jesus begins his and he's teaching in the synagogues, the centers of Jewish education. And he's preaching the good news of the imminent arrival of this promised kingdom. And, and he's healing many of all kinds of ailments and diseases. That's his threefold ministry as he comes on the scene, is teaching and preaching and healing. Now when it comes to the preaching, look back to the text here. In verse 24, no, in verse 23, when it says he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, I want us to notice here that this is not the gospel that oftentimes we talk about. That we talk about the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. That's what we celebrate. That's what we sing about. And so it should be. And that's what we share with other people. That's not what he's talking about here. What's the gospel? The gospel means good news. It's the good news of the coming kingdom. That's the gospel he's proclaiming. Good news. That kingdom that you have longed for, that you waited for, it is on the horizon. It is fast approaching. This is the kingdom that he is proclaiming 
a message consistent with John the Baptist, his, his forerunner. However, there is one thing different about John's ministry to Jesus' ministry. They're both proclaiming the same message, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the good news of the coming kingdom. But there's one significant difference. It's that Jesus comes along and he pairs his message with miracles. With healings of all sorts of people. These these miracles we need to understand are, are, are validations. They're evidences of what he's saying is actually from God. You need to understand that in the first century, they couldn't Google the message that was being given to them from town to town. They couldn't fact check online these traveling prophets. People had come into their town proclaiming, thus saith the Lord, this, this, this. Well, how do they know? In fact, when we come to the book of Acts, we see when some of the apostles are put on trial for what they're proclaiming, and the synagogue and the leaders there are are gnashing their teeth and want to kill these, these apostles. One of their own, Gamaliel, stands up and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Remember, other people have risen up claiming to be messiahs, and they fizzled out because they weren't from God. So it shows us that people were traveling around making claims that weren't from God. How do people know which are from God and which are not? Jesus comes along, he says, hear ye, hear ye, here comes the kingdom. And they say, how do we know? He's, you healed. Bang, you can walk. You had a demon before, now you don't. So he's pairing it with these miracles, so people say, oh, okay. This is from God. He says, thus saith the Lord, how do we know? Here, I'll show you. And he heals them. That's something that Jesus brought on the scene and paired with his ministry that John the Baptist did not have access to. And no doubt, partly because of all this miraculous healing, these miracles that he was performing on all sorts of people with all sorts of ailments, he wasn't a one-trick pony. He was healing everyone that was brought to him. Because of that, no doubt, his popularity grew quickly. And we see by the end of this text, he's moved from from relative obscurity when he was baptized and went out to the wilderness, and now all of a sudden he is a massive celebrity. It's the king being introduced through his miraculously reinforced ministry, and the people loved it. I mean, how could they not? We heard tomorrow that down at Lakeshore there was someone down there healing everyone. We would probably line up. Cancer, gone. Depression, gone. Stomach issues, gone. If you hear that and word spreads, crowds follow. You want to see whether or not this is for real. And if it is by chance real, I want to be healed. So word was spreading of this traveling prophet. And he's healing people. He's got a great message too, but he's healing people. So crowds flock to him. Now I do also want to note one final thing in this text. And it's a subtle bit of foreshadowing that Matthew includes. See, when when Jesus begins his ministry, it's in total alignment with his forerunner. We've seen that, right, with with John the Baptist. He goes to the house of Israel. He goes to the Jews. He's teaching in their synagogues, and he's proclaiming a very Jewish message, this coming kingdom, David's throne being filled. This is very Jewish in flavor. But notice what happens as these three verses that conclude the chapter, as they continue— Though Jesus was ministering, it says, throughout all Galilee, right? In verse 23, he was going throughout all Galilee. Verse 24, the news about him spread throughout all Syria. So though Jesus is coming along the scenes and and coming along and and preaching to the Jewish people, a very Jewish, Jewish message, he can't contain it. It's bursting out of the borders of Israel to all the surrounding areas and crowds are flocking. In fact, the message goes to all of Syria and they 
bring their ill. They bring their sick, and he's healing. See, the the king and his kingdom were indeed, they were promised to Israel, but the, the prophets also were very clear that the whole world would be blessed through his reign and through its establishment. In fact, let me read you a couple of examples. The first, from Zechariah chapter 2. This is just one example of a prophecy. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 10 and following. The prophet says, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. Who's Zion? Jerusalem, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Did you catch that? Rejoice, daughter of Zion, Jerusalem. Many nations are going to come in and share in this joyous time in the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, something similar. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and following says this, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, Israel, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the, Lord, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. What a promise that is. But you notice both fo- foci there. Jerusalem, this center point, it coming from Jerusalem, from Zion, but all nations joining in. That's what we see here in Matthew chapter 4 as well, or at least a hint of it. Here at the end of Matthew's description of the, the king's introduction, we have this kingdom preview, if you will, this preview. Yes, it is coming to Israel, the kingdom. And yes, its capital will be Jerusalem. And yes, the Messiah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, will sit eternally on David's throne. But Gentiles will enjoy, participate, and worship in that day as well. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. That it is coming to Israel. It is Israel's kingdom promised to them, but we get to join in and share in the blessings. First impressions, they're important. And and Jesus made a strong one when he came on the scene to his people. He made a strong one. He was introduced to his people for the first time through fulfilled prophecy, through kingly authority as he called his disciples and through miraculous ministry. It's quite the introduction to his people. Now we want to move to relevancy. Because we have to ask the question, so what? So so what? Why, Why should we care about the first impressions that Jesus made to his people 2,000 years ago? I mean, what difference does it make the way in which the king was introduced? And what difference does it make to our lives today? Well, I want to make three observations from this text this morning that we can take with us into this week. Three things that we can dwell on, we can roll around in our heads as we go forth this week and we think about this text. Three observations. The first one has to do with the kingdom. The second has to do with the king. And the third has to do with us. The kingdom, the king, and us. Observation number one. We need to understand that the kingdom, this promised kingdom, it is liberating. It is freeing. It is emancipating. It is 
completely liberating. This thing that we're waiting for, this kingdom that has been promised, this kingdom that was announced by Jesus here, it is liberating. Well, it's true as Christians, we've been liberated from the power of sin in our lives. We have that now. We are still surrounded by the groanings of creation, are we not? We sense it groaning. We've talked about it this morning. Jim led us in a prayer for some of the manifestations of that groaning of creation. Satan is the ruler of this world, and because of that, it is fallen. There is death and disappointment. It's trauma and tears, fear and failure, sin and suffering. It's all around us. We never want to call good what is not good. Creation groans, waiting for its redemption. Our world is aching for its liberation. That's what the groans are, aching to be liberated from this curse. A liberation that has been promised and we look forward to. This kingdom is liberating. I know I've read these verses several times from this pulpit already, but I can't help it. It's just so good. Revelation chapter 21 and 22, as the Apostle John looks forward, he's been given a glimpse of what is to come. This, this kingdom on earth and the liberation that it brings. This is what he describes. It says in Revelation chapter 21, 2 and following, John says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Sounds very Jewish. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, sounds kingly, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. In verse 22 of the same chapter, I saw no temple in it, that is Jerusalem. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. There's that light theme again. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Chapter 22, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. I can't wait. I cannot wait. When you and I find ourselves looking around this world and, and this life and see the groanings and feel the groanings, maybe we're tempted, we're starting to become discouraged or disheartened or deflated. We get down and say, how much longer, God? How much longer will you tarry? This is too much. Everything's falling apart. Nothing's as it should be. When we look around and see that, see creation groaning, we're invited here to remember the light. The light that appeared to Zebulon and Naphtali. The light signifying that, that freedom is coming. This kingdom that brings liberation, true, lasting freedom. It is on the horizon. It is at hand. See, this coming kingdom is liberating. And, and that very fact of this future freedom actually frees us up in the present as well, doesn't it? When we know we will be freed, that brings 
freedom now. Read one more text here in 2 Peter. We've been through Peter recently as a church, but in 2 Peter chapter 3, he makes this connection between what is to come and how that affects us in the present. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Sounds familiar? Sounds like Revelation 21. Therefore, because of what we're looking forward to, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. See, because we know what's coming, because we know liberation is on the horizon, that can free us to live freely now. Free from the oppression of this world because we know what comes next. We know that liberation is on the horizon and we ache for it just as all creation groans for it. We long for it. The kingdom is liberating not only in the future when it comes but in the present because of its imminent arrival. We want to remind each other of that. This world is fading away. We are aliens. We are strangers passing through. This world is not our home. Our passport is stamped elsewhere. That liberates us now. So Observation number one, the kingdom is liberating. May we never forget that. May we walk in the power of that truth now. You want to talk about how God's people can look different in this world? Imagine a bunch of people whistling around in the, in the heat of all this chaos as, as creation groans maybe this year more than ever in our recent memory. And we say, it's true. It's groaning. It's true. We don't deny that. There's hardship now, but, but liberation is coming. The kingdom is coming. Observation number two from this text. The king is calling. The king is calling. In our passage, we saw that Jesus, one who fulfilled prophecy and declared a message that was verified by these miracles that he authenticated, we saw this Jesus, he wielded an authority that was really hard to ignore, wasn't it? Come, follow me. They get up and they just follow him. No questions asked immediately. He called out to these people that the world thought was unimpressive. They didn't give a second thought to and he charged them with a task of immeasurable importance and promised to equip them to carry it out. And that same king, as I mentioned before, we need to understand that that same king with no less authority now is calling to each one of us today. Each one of us he's calling to. To some of us he's calling you to eternal life for the first time, perhaps. Maybe you're listening to this online or you're here and you've been to church before, but you've never actually trusted Christ You've never taken that step and put your faith in Christ. That king is calling to you and saying, follow me. There is death, there is destitution, there is darkness, but there is freedom from that. There is hope if you trust in me. I am the promised king, the promised Messiah. Trust me, I'm the son of God. I died for your sins. You may think you're a pretty good person. You may think you're a pretty good person. And by all accounts, maybe you are. By a worldly standard, you might be A-OK. The problem is God's standard is not A-OK. God's standard is holiness. You had to join the club because none of us are there. We've all fallen short. And God says, you don't have to be perfect anymore because my son came and he was perfect. He lived the life that you're called to live but failed to do on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. He did it. And he paid for your sins on the cross. It's done. It's finished. Trust in him and you pass from death to life, from darkness into light. So that king, with all his authority, he might be calling you for the first time just like that today. And if he is, I pray like crazy that you bend the knee of your heart and just in the quietness of your own mind and heart say, Lord, I trust you. 
I'm tired of running from you. That's all you need to do. You don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to give money to the church. All you have to do is have a conversation with God right now and say, I trust you. I trust in Christ for my salvation, for eternal life. That's it. It's done. So he's calling to you for the first time, perhaps. But for some of us, we've done that, and he's calling us, perhaps, to be faithful in suffering, in pain, in disappointment, and in financial crises. He's calling for you right now today just to trust him. You've placed your trust in for salvation. I was saying, trust me, I can provide for you. I can walk through you, this with you. I can, I can be your comfort. I can be your strength. Trust me. Maybe he's calling you to do that today. For still others, he's calling for dependence. He's saying, depend on me. You, you trust me, you're a child of mine, but yet you still walk with a, a stiff back. You still try to do things your own way. Give it up. He's calling for an increased dependence from you, perhaps. Well, for all of us, he's calling for a life of faith. That's for sure. This father with all authority, this Lord, this king, he's calling for us for a life of faith. Saying, walk by faith, not by sight. Trust me. He's calling us to make disciples, right? To to share our faith with other people. I mean, that cuts across all that we're experiencing. All of us are called to that. He's calling us to love one another in ways that he himself has prescribed. It's a mark of the church is that we love one another sacrificially. We give up our own preferences, our own dignity, perhaps, our own, our own values, whatever it is, we give it up for our brothers and sisters in Christ that they may grow in Christ-likeness. He's calling us to that. He's calling us to, to hope in what is to come. He's calling us to participate in the church he's building. To, he's calling us to sing to one another songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. He's calling us to remind one another of these incredible truths, to walk in unity, to pursue holiness. You know what he's calling us to. There are many things that he's calling us, inviting us to. But make no mistake, he's calling with a kingly authority. The king is calling. These are grand tasks that we list, and we could go on listing them for a long time. They are weighty tasks. Some of them, we, and even if we list them, we say, how could I ever do all of that? There's no way I could do all of that. I'm sure that's what the disciples thought too. When he first called them and said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. They said, we're just fishermen. We can't do that. He said, I will make you fishers of men. You don't have it in you. You don't have it in yourself. I will equip you for the task I'm calling you to. And so it is for us today as believers. He calls us to some grand things. And he equips us to do those things so that he gets the glory. The king is calling. So not only are we observing here that that the kingdom is liberating, that we look forward to, and the king is calling us. But here's the third observation I want us to meditate on this week. And that is that we're to be following. That just comes out of that second observation. The king is calling and we're to be following. We're to be coming after him. If the, if the king is calling us, and he is, and if, he's, if he is authoritative, and he is, then we best respond like those four disciples did in our text today. Immediately, sacrificially, joyfully, go after him. Just go after him. You know, think about it this way. You know, if he is the king of kings, if he is that, if that is his title, if that is his role, if he is the coming king, if his first impression was that of fulfilled prophecy and recruitment with authority and miracle-reinforced ministry, if that is how he showed himself to the world for the first time on earth, then, then how can we respond in any other way than immediately and sacrificially? If he is who he says he is, then we can't put one foot in and one foot out. If he is the king, then we have to go all in. And by the way, if the kingdom is liberating and fast approaching, what have we got to lose? We go all in, reckless abandon, follow him because we know what's coming next and we know who's actually calling us. So we're to be following him. As we close, 
I want to close this time right now. But I ask you just to bow where you are. Let's, let's spend some time in prayer. I want to give us some time right now to, to talk to God and, and ask him to show each of us individually to what he's calling us this week. Maybe it's something we know we've been called to for a while. Maybe it's something that was reminded to us this morning. Whatever it is. What is God calling you to this week? And ask him to give, give you a view of our king and his coming kingdom that liberates and empowers us to respond to that authoritative calling with enthusiasm. Talk to the Lord right now and ask him to reveal that to you and to give you the power to follow him faithfully. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it doesn't take much of a reminder to, for us to see that the, the world is groaning, that it is not as it should be, that it is not as it once was, but we rejoice that it is not as it will one day be. We thank you for that truth. We thank you that your Son came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom that the kingdom will be established on earth, that he will reign as the perfect king. can't even imagine living under the rule of one that is perfectly righteous and perfectly just and perfectly loving. Our minds can hardly comprehend that, but we hope in it. We long for it. And with every sting that sin hits us with, and with every sting that the curse smacks us with day after day, week after week. Maybe, may we be reminded that it is not how it will always be, that we long for that coming kingdom. We long for the coming king, the king who even now calls us with absolute authority. Father, we pray that we would have the courage and the discipline and the humility to come after him, to come after him with sacrifice and with willingness and immediacy to come after him knowing that freedom is on the horizon, true freedom, that any sort of sacrifice now will be short-lived and eternally rewarded. Father, may this future perspective not only make us most influential in the now, but also may it distinguish us from the world around us today as well. As we go into this world, may we be so heavenly minded that we are the most earthly good as your people, particularly those here at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. As we go out into Oakville, may we show this world a hope that they know not where it comes from. Father, give us a, a, a bold testimony in those things. Sharpen us in what we long for, we pray. May we walk in those longings. Father, and we pray as your Son instructed us to pray, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Work through us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.